Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Good morning, Mercy family. Morning. Hey, Hebrews chapter 12, you got your Bible, get open to Hebrews chapter 12. While you are getting there, turning that Bible on and thumbing there or opening it up, good old-fashioned way, flipping over there, uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you love a good movie trilogy? Like a good trilogy, right? Like if it takes you three movies to tell a story when you could do it in one, that is for me. All right, I want the big, long, drawn-out thing. I love them. Godfather, right? That's got to be the classic staple. Indiana Jones, because that Skulls thing should have never happened, right? So just the the main three. I think of uh, Lord of the Rings. It's one of my favorites. I made Courtney watch all three in one day once. Um, She she doesn't like it. Um, (laughs) But uh, Star Wars, the OG, like the first four, five, and six, you know what I mean? I love them. I love them. Divergent, Hunger Games. I'll even take Expendables, right? Um, Hunger Games should have been three. Again, others I think they should have been that way, right? Um, I love them. Each movie can stand on its own, but... If you watch all three together, the story really builds, right, to this awesome climactic ending. And I bring that up because these three sermons that we're doing in Hebrews chapter 12 are kind of like that. At least I'm thinking of them that way. We got a big overarching purpose that we are after. I told you about last week. Um, And each sermon, each passage is kind of building on itself towards the end. Our big purpose is that we are on a quest, I told you, to get a bigger view of God. Like, that's what we're after as a church over these three weeks, a bigger view of God. And next week, we're going to see it kind of in full in the passage towards the ends of Hebrews 12. Last week, we saw how God was a loving father. Next week, we're going to see this powerful picture of heaven, and we're going to see God as a consuming fire. And what I told you is that if... If we'll let Scripture teach us and instruct us and let God expand our view of him, our response is going to be to that, what what I said was holy awe. And that's my prayer for us, holy awe. Like when you grow up like I did, um, visiting the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains year after year after year, right? And then you see the peaks of the Rocky Mountains for the first time. You're like, whoa, that's a mountain, You know what I mean? Like it's a very different feeling when you get there. There's a new understanding of what a mountain is. And when that happens with your view of God, when you've had a small view of God and all of a sudden God opens your eyes to who he really is and your view of God gets bigger, everything else starts to get a little bit smaller. You start to be humbled by how big he is. Fears about the future get smaller because that bigger God and what he says about you, he says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Right? Other people, their voice in your life start to get smaller because you hear that God speaking to you, calling you beloved child. In truth, everything this is why I'm so, uh, so, I guess, emphatic on us getting this bigger view of God is because everything in our lives is shaped, first and foremost, by how we see God. 
A.W. Tozer, he once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God, that's the most important thing about us. And almost always, the, the problems and situations in our lives, the reason they create the stress and anxiety they do is because our small God can't handle them. Right? The reason we're casual with God is because he isn't big and awe-inspiring of us. He's a gentle rolling foothill. Right? That's why we don't pray desperately or seek the scriptures ravenously. We're not in awe of him. That's why we don't talk to people who don't know him. We don't talk about him. It's why some of us, some among us, fall away from the faith. Seeing this very popular thing right now in culture, people going through deconstruction of their faith. And the problem is they've only ever had a God so small they could take them apart. They're missing the beautiful, majestic, holy, mysterious, awe-inspiring God. The God who made Everest and who made K2 with just a word. That God. Holy awe, that's our pursuit. And today is kind of part two of the, I don't know, the Hebrews 12 Holy Awe Trilogy. Okay, that's just, that's just me, right, making that up. Uh, it's the in-between thing. It stands alone, but it makes more sense with the other two. And we're going to start in verses 14 and go to 17. And the reason I do all that work to set this and frame this for you is because in these four verses, we're going to look at the things that will keep us from seeing God. If this whole three, if this Hebrews 12 is trying to get us to see God rightly, these verses right here are set as a warning about the things that will keep us from seeing God. If God really is so awe-inspiring and wonderful, it's like, well, yeah, then yeah, we should just be captivated by him. Why aren't we? That's what this passage talks about. And I've said seeing God a few times, say what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about that present right now seeing God, that relationship with him, knowing the God of the Bible for who he is and experiencing the fullness of salvation and the fullness of walking with his spirit day in, day out. I'm talking about present seeing God. I'm also talking about future, an arrival kind of idea of seeing God, that one day we will see God in full, in his glory, in heaven, we'll see him face to face. And the scripture is going to talk that way. There's a, a present reality of seeing God and a future hope that we have to see him one day and arrive there. And so, like I said, today is a series of warnings to open our eyes, sober us up to the things that will keep us from seeing there. The author warns us about five things. So that's the outline today. All right. It's going to walk slowly through four verses of scripture. If you're newer with us, uh, I said it last week, we say it pretty often around here, we want the Bible to instruct us as we look into it. Let, we believe this is God's word, so we'll let it instruct us as to how we're to think and walk. And so today, we're just going to walk through it, and I'm going to show you about five things that will keep us from seeing God that the scriptures warn us about, and then show us our hope um, each time through it. In fact, what I'm going to show you is, uh, this is pretty common in our lives, right? The things that could be great obstacles... I'm going to show you that when we become aware of them, they can actually be catalysts to our pursuit of God if we just lean in on them, all right? So we'll start in verse 14. Here we go. Verse 14. You ready? Yes. Somebody just wooed the Bible, and that's what we need more of. You can be, the thing tell like a woo girl, right? If you're a woo girl for the Bible, that's a good thing, all right? So that's what it is. Or a woo guy. I don't know if that's a thing. Anyways, verse 14, I'm out of my element, back in the Bible, where I belong. All right, here we go. Verse 14, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. First thing, actually two things in this, right? 
that'll keep us from seeing God. Let's take them one at a time. That first phrase right there, pursue peace with everyone. The first thing that'll keep us from seeing God is disunity. Specifically here, he's saying pursue peace with everyone. He's given us an active command here, and he's talking to the church. The writer is talking to the church when it says pursue peace with everyone. He's talking about every one another inside the body of Christ. Now listen, I don't know about y'all. I grew up um, in a mid-sized Baptist church, okay, two to 300 people, and um, I got plenty of good memories from that church. None of those are from a church business meeting, Okay, none of those memories came from there. I don't know if you were ever a, a part of those, if you have a church background, anything like that, but that was like the place where people came because everybody gets a vote, Baptist church kind of thing, which is, of course, the same thing that Mercy's a Baptist church, but when we, ho- we hold our business meetings, they're kind of orderly and sensical, I think, because of all my uh, baggage that I carry from those. But I'm talking about there were some crazy arguments over the silliest of things. Like everybody's pent up rage at their boss comes out in the church business meeting where they can grab a microphone and legit argue. I saw one argument over the color of the carpet, right? What are we going to do? Are we going to make it, somebody will be, it's got to be red because that's the blood of Jesus. And you're like, well, how am I going to argue with the Jesus card that you just played? You know, you got somebody else, no brown, because that's the color of the cross. No, it's got to be green because that's new life in Christ. No, it's got to be blue because that's the baptism waters and that's heaven that Christ come back. And you're like, the pastor's over there just kind of dying inside, right? It's like, blue? Are we going to be Boise State football? Like, what are we doing here? No, it's not going to happen. It's, I know that's petty disunity. I've seen it. But real disunity, the deeper stuff does the same thing, even, even worse. It takes up all your extra time and, more importantly, your mind and your heart. Think about it. Think about the disunity you've experienced in your life with other believers. Your heart's filled with emotions about what's going on there, about what was said, about what wasn't said. Why did they do this or that? And what's their next move going to be? You think about it constantly, and the whole time the enemy is laughing because he's winning, because your mind is nowhere near God. Maybe you ask God in passing to fix the mess, but maybe my question is when you're in conflict with a brother or sister in Christ, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, a child, do you spend more time praying for them or devising a winning strategy to beat them? There's a reason Jesus prayed in John 17 when he prayed. His last prayer for the church was unity. There's a reason we're called to gospel sacrifice of our gospel liberties. It's to preserve gospel unity among our brothers and sisters. There's a reason. Jesus says, if you've got a conflict with somebody else, before you bring a gift to the altar, go and reconcile with your brother or sister. Then come back. There's a reason the Apostle Paul calls us to do the same kind of thing, to resolve conflict with one another before we take communion together because God doesn't want hypocritical worship, right? Worshiping as if everything's okay, all the while harboring anger and and bitterness towards one another. He's a reconciling God. He calls us to be ministers of reconciliation, and we get so focused on problems, we miss God, and we just go through the motions of our faith while our hearts are somewhere else. But now the flip side of that, I told you that's a great obstacle that will take down a whole church, and that's what he's warning here. But on the contrary, Christians who seize a moment of conflict as an opportunity together to outdo one another in showing honor, to wash each other's feet, to fast and pray for unity, to listen to, listen to me, to listen and embrace one another when we express our hurt 
instead of labeling one another by our hurt, who sacrifice and bless when we could withhold and curse, these are the ones who pursue peace. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. They see God, and God is seen among them. Y'all, conflict is okay. There are plenty of New Testament examples of conflict. Jesus gives us prescriptions for how to handle conflict. But conflict, conflict can be resolved in peace. Disunity is the fruit of unhealthy conflict. We've got to pursue peace with everyone. Don't, and look, pursue peace, this got me a little bit this week. That means don't settle for a stalemate. You know what I mean? Like, don't just settle for the stalemate. Like, too many marriages and too many churches are in cold wars right now. Like, it's all just, we're not going to battle because of, like, this fear of mutual destruction. You know what I mean? That's not what he's calling us. He's calling us to pursue peace. And then he goes even further, pursue peace. And secondly, holiness. And he just says, without it, no one will see the Lord. There's a second thing that keeps us from seeing God unholiness. It's, it's pretty simple here. It's quite simply a disqualifier from seeing God. Pursue holiness. Without holiness, no one sees God, which means you don't experience that head and heart knowledge, that present relationship, that future reality. You'll miss all of that. So let's talk about what, if, if holiness is the qualifier, let's talk about what it is. It's holiness of heart. You can call it internal, external. I'll call it holiness of heart, holiness of life. There's a holiness of heart that means you've genuinely received forgiveness of Christ offered to you in his death and resurrection. We're going to come back to how Christ makes you holy. He gives you his holiness. That's where the whole sermon's building towards today. But y'all, holiness of life, good morality without holiness of heart is empty religion. It's moralism. And I got to say this because good people who've not been forgiven of their sins by Christ, will not see God. You got to let that sober us up. You know, you think, well, yeah, but that person's such, she's such a good person. Then she urgently needs the gospel because the Lord didn't die for bad people to become good people. He died for sinners to be made holy. And all Oh, every, I'm not saying anything that doesn't apply to me. Every last one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You've got to have holiness internal. I'm going to call it holiness of heart. But then there's holiness of life. Like your life bears the fruit of your heart. James says faith without works is dead. This is the call out to all of you church theologians who, like me, I mean, we can do this. We can talk a holy game and not live a holy life. Your profession is verified by your life. Your actions reveal the condition of your heart. Like if I, if I stand up here today and I tell you, you know, I work out three hours every day. Like I start in the morning with an hour of Pilates to get nice and loose. And then I do an hour and a half of intense weightlifting, protein shakes, and I finish with an hour of cardio. You would look at me and go, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think you do that. Well, I say that I do. Yeah, but the, and you're pretty kind to people, so you would think to yourself something like, the evidence just doesn't seem to bear out that that is true, right? It's the, it's the evidence. And the Bible says the exact same thing about our walk with God. A tree is not known by its words. A tree is known by its fruit. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
How many metaphors do you need from God to convince you that what you do and what you think is a thermometer for the condition of your heart? Now, this is the burden of this passage, okay? So I, I want to like pause right here to you as your shepherd and pastor and say, don't let this thing beat you up. Let it sober you up, all right? God knows that there's no one truly holy except Christ, and you and I will fall along the way. He's calling you to read the words of the text, pursue holiness, pursue it. You will never arrive at it perfectly. And he's doing that for our good, calling us to that for our good. Because think about the flip side again, right? The flip side of it, just like you have this opportunity in the space of conflict to really see the Lord more if you pursue peace. You have this opportunity if you pursue holiness to see the Lord. Because pursuing holiness is pursuing Jesus. It's doing what he calls you to do and, and walking in the power of his presence and what it supplies. And as you walk with him, as you meet with him, pursuing him in prayer and study, as you obey him throughout the day, you experience the fullness of joy that comes from his presence. That's Psalm 16. You fix your eyes on Jesus. You start to experience the power of walking with him. Here's the biggest thing. I got to say it here. The beautiful hope of the gospel is that Jesus, who is holy, says, if you'll receive what he did for you on the cross and walk in it, if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. Then you'll be made holy. As we just sang, you'll be made new. Jesus is saying, I'll save you. I'll save you. I'll give you my holiness. I'll take your sin, and then you can see God. What an announcement. Pursue peace. Pursue holiness. Make those your aim. And as you make those your aim, here are the things to watch out for. Verse 15, he's going to give us two more. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. It's the next thing that keeps us from seeing God. I don't know how else to say this other than missing grace. Missing grace. Here's a, he says, make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. And honestly, that section of this verse was the thing that I wrestled with um, all week in preparation. It's a little bit difficult. What does it mean? We've got to recognize this letter is addressed to Christians, and he's saying to the group, and this is a call to us, church, watch out for one another. This is a communal effort, but the thing about grace is all you have to do is receive it, right? You don't earn it, so how could anyone among us fall short of grace when all we have to do is receive it? Well, easy. He's saying some among you think that just because they are among you, they have the grace of God. But in actuality, the grace was never received. They've never dealt with God personally. The true Christian community, after all, can be very, a very positive thing to be around. I, I love being around this church, right? Good friends, maybe you get some inspiration week to week. But if you don't come to him fully repentant of your sin, fully in need of his grace, fully surrendering your life to him, you're not a follower of Jesus. You have fallen short of grace. You might be a fan of Jesus among here, you know, here, nodding your head and agreement and everything. You might be a fan, but not a follower. It's like when UNC wins a national championship. You know, in two years, we win our first one under Hubert Davis. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to be cheering, going crazy, right? When we win a national championship in basketball, I have this tendency to jump up out of my seat and yell, we did it. But we did not do it, right? They did it. <laughs> and I am a fan of what they 
do. I mean, when I went to UNC, there's only one time where I celebrated with the players. That's when we beat Michigan State, last second shot, it's a home game. And so we do, we rush the court, woo, you know, and I'm yelling, we did it, even though I didn't do anything, right? I just stood in there and cheered and everything. I'll tell you what, even if I made it on the court, when I tried to like kind of sneak my way back to the locker room with the team, there was this huge security guard that was like, um, no, you're not going anywhere. Why? Because I was not a part of the team, right? Nobody gave me a scholarship to go play basketball there. I was not on the team. I was just a fan. Y'all, I got to plead with some of you today to not just be a fan of Jesus and to soberly take stock of your relationship with God. I praise God. I'm all about, we're actually all about as a church, of you kind of belonging in your journey towards belief. All right? But this is the great burden of having that mindset is that I don't want you to just stand around here and be a part of this church thinking you're good with God while never having dealt with him. One of the most haunting things Jesus says is that some people are going to walk into the afterlife and be surprised by where they stand with Jesus. That's Matthew 7. Listen to this. On that day, on that day when you stand face to face before the Lord, many will say to me, he says, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? Lord, we were, we were on the team, right? I mean, we were there. We were doing ministry, right? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. You can be around the things of God, but not have actually dealt with God personally and received his grace. And I think it is his grace to you today to call that out, put that on the table, and call you to receive his grace. Don't miss it. What if everything God has done in your life is preparation for this moment for you to finally receive his offer of forgiveness? That's where we're heading today. The great news of today is if, if you're hearing my words, you're a candidate for grace. We're going to see an example of someone who uh, it was too late for him at the end of this passage. But you see, it's not too late for you. The hope here is that if you'll receive his grace, you can have assurance of Christ. You can have eternity with him. You can hear him say, your, your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And on that day, you'll hear him say, welcome home, son. Welcome home, daughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. Will you receive his grace? Here's the next thing he says there. What keeps us from seeing God? The next thing he calls out is bitterness. He calls out bitterness right here. That no root makes sure no one falls short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. All right, this bitterness word here, this root of bitterness, is actually a callback to Deuteronomy 29.18. And I'm going to tell you, look, you start reading your Bible, what you're going to see is that most of the New Testament is a callback to the Old Testament through the lens of the gospel and what the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's really awesome. So I'm like, get them both. Uh, I love the little green Bibles, but you need that Old Testament, all right? Because it explains everything that you're going to get, all right? So look, watch this. This is Deuteronomy 29, 18 through 20. This is going to sound pretty heavy, but it helps you understand what we're doing, all right? Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 29. I'll have it on the screen. You can get it later if you can't flip there. Here's Moses talking. He says, be sure there's no man woman, clan, or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the God of these nations. Be sure there is no, here we go, root 
among you bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. But then he keeps going. I thought about stopping right there. I was like, I don't want to go spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy. But watch the next couple of verses. When someone hears the words of this oath, he may consider himself exempt, thinking, I will have peace, even though I follow my own stubborn heart. I've, <laughs> I have heard those words recited, not knowing that they were actually in Deuteronomy 29, 18, 19, right? This will lead to the destruction of the well-watered land as well as the dry land. The Lord will not be willing to forgive them. Instead, his anger and jealousy will burn against that person, and every curse written in the scroll will descend on him. The Lord will blot out his name under heaven. Again, that's a sobering passage in the Old Testament, and Hebrews is calling it back here to talk and seeing it through the lens of Christ, which is going to change it a little bit. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't end up like the person that God blots out, right? I'm not talking about you never having a, a negative feeling, the root of bitterness. You know, we're not trying to create a scenario where you're like, man, I'm feeling a little angry today. I must not be a Christian. No, I'm not talking about that. It's talking about that root of bitterness springing up. This is hurt that has turned into something else. It's when you start to change the narrative in your heart towards another person from you did this to you are this. And everything that person does, that group of people do, it infuriates you. Bitter fruit, you know what it looks like? It starts to look like apathy towards God and apathy towards others. Bitter fruit sometimes is self-destructive, head-first dives into sin. Bitter fruit is lashing out at others. Bitter fruit is gossip. Bitter fruit is a toxic thing that he says will defile many. And if bitterness is the fruit, what's the root that springs up? And y'all, it's what the Bible calls idolatry. It's desiring something more than you desire God. Needing something more than you need God. And bitterness comes because that thing that you needed lets you down. And in your disappointment, you get bitter. And some of you, I know, you've been, you don't even know, like, it might be hard to trace back where it started. But you've been a bitter person for years. And my response to you there is there is great hope for you today. Because the, the great flip side of bitterness is that it does not have to be a permanent condition. I've seen God turn bitter people into joyful, generous people through the power of his presence. I've seen the spirit of God who loves to renew and refresh lives that were once cold and bitter. I've seen him do it. I once saw, him do a, I once saw this with a guy that... Oh, my goodness. Um, 63 years old, been having a two-decade-long affair on his wife. Um, had run away from, from home and everything else. And one Sunday morning, he showed up at church. Sat down in the 9 o'clock service, listened to the sermon. Came, it stayed there through the 11 o'clock service, listened to it, uh, sermon again. And during that second service, he gave his life to the Lord. And I watched the Spirit of God change that man. His cold bitter heart, made bitter through years of self-destructive patterns, things that he thought would bring him joy, but the more he went into them, actually the colder and more bitter he got. I watched the Lord. I watched him be renewed by the Lord. I watched Acts 3, 23, just kind of like play out before my eyes, where it says, if you will repent from your sin, then seasons of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. I watched it happen to this guy. He's been a changed man ever since. If you'll look to Christ Look to him, follow him, choose him. Even though you don't have it all figured out, the promise is that bitterness will be replaced by peace. 
Some of us need that today. Let's turn to the final thing here that keeps us from seeing God. It's the last two verses, 16 and 17. It's a story, or it's a call complete with a made, really just hits home using a story. Make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, so you got this guy Esau, you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for repentance. Here's the last thing the author says will keep us from seeing God. It's immorality. It's immorality, immoral or irreverent. The story, of being, the story being referenced here is Genesis 25. It's from Genesis 25. There's two guys, Esau, his brother, Jacob. They were the two sons of Isaac. Esau is the older brother. And as the older brother, in this time, he, he was going to receive the lion's share of the inheritance that Isaac would leave him, right? We're talking about um, inheritance, land, and all that kind of thing. But also, and even more importantly, he was going to receive a blessing from God given through his father, Isaac. All right, this was a big deal, big, big deal. Like, your future generations will be this way kind of blessing. All right, and what our text is referencing is that one day Esau, who was a hunter, big burly man, really hairy dude, it says, he comes in from the field, and he's exhausted, and Jacob is cooking some stew, all right? I don't know what kind of stew. Red stew is all we know when you go look back at it, all right? So Esau who's so exhausted and so dramatic, all right? He's like, give me some of that stew. Actually, he says, give me some of that red stuff is the way that, way that it says it, if you go back and look at Genesis 25. Jacob was very crafty. He says, sure, I'll sell it to you for your birthright, which is crazy. Inheritance and blessing, like all my future generations and everything else, I'm gonna sell all that for stew? But Esau, again, a little bit of a drama guy, and you know, a lot of guys are this way. When they feel a little bit of pain, they have very low pain tolerance, one of them, okay? So what all women think about us, guys, all right, so you know, right? He's like, well, what good is my birthright if I'm dead? So he says, okay, deal. And every reader of the story, when that happens, goes, what? No way that's real. That's absurd, and then you read a couple chapters later in life, and their dad is now, Isaac's now dying, and Jacob tricks his dad into giving him the blessing that he's already tricked his brother out of. Esau comes in, and this is what Hebrews is referencing, weeping. He's weeping because now on the other side of all this, having made that decision, realized it was a bad decision, everything else, he comes in, he's like, I want the blessing. And his father says, it's too late. It's too late. And our author here is saying, Esau is not as much of an absurd outlier as you might think. That's why he's bringing it up, talking to the church. Because there were enough Esau's in the church for him to write this down. Some of you are trading salvation, new life, and eternal peace, your birthright in Christ, for temporary pleasure, for stew. And it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy how we give ourselves to these things, how intoxicating the appetites of our flesh really are. Talking to the 
secret porn addict. Stop selling your birthright for stew. The spouse cheating right now. Stop selling your birthright for stew. To the 20-something, spending your money and your life all on things and your attention, all on things that are going to bring you short-term pleasure and long-term pain. It's stew. Why are you paying such a high price? I'm talking about those of you who are playing games with God. You're ultimately driven by your appetite, whether it's a literal appetite, food kind of thing, and God is, your actual God is your stomach instead of Jesus, or you're driven by some other appetite. Esau was intoxicated by it, and so he forfeited everything. And the warning here is to wake you and I up. Esau couldn't tell what he was doing in the moment. We have this here in the Spirit of God with us to wake us up, saying, don't be Esau. And if you're hearing my words, that means there's still an opportunity for you. That's the point. That's the hope of him bringing this up. Don't fall short of the grace of God. Don't be Esau. Instead, if you'll say, okay, I need help. Man, the power of Christ will set you free from the power of sin and death. You can be made new. The bondage that that intoxicating appetite can have over you can actually be broken. And you can be set free. Even though you've let it consume you, you can receive the grace of God and be made new. The world tells you, here's the thing. The world tells you, indulge your appetite. And the world refuses to tolerate any notion that that appetite may not be good for you. But then the world condemns you when that appetite consumes you and leads you to wreck your life. But the gospel goes ahead and acknowledges, hey, we're all messed up. Everybody's messed up and our appetites are off. Instead of condemning you for self-indulgence, God offers you forgiveness for it and freedom from the very thing that's causing you so much destruction. Turn to him and find life. Which leads me right to the end of our sermon. Well, if these things are all keeping us from seeing God, then what is our hope? The hope is that the righteousness of Christ covers us. Messed up, appetite-driven, bitter, conflict pursuing right people that we're we're just messed up sinners and the righteousness of Christ covers us that's Isaiah 61:10 and leads me to worship i love it i rejoice greatly in the lord i exult in my god is praising for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and wrapped me in robes of righteousness what i want you to receive today in all these warnings is a reminder of your gospel identity of who you are in Christ. Next week's all about future hope of Christians. And the, and the reason you are to heed this warning, all these warnings that are in this section, is because of who you are, who he has called you to be. So let me give you just a little bit from the, the last part of Hebrews chapter 12. All right, I'm going to read you verses 22 to 24. You have come to, this is the arrival part of the seeing. This is that one day in glory. You have come to, and he's saying you're already there because of your standing in Christ, because he covers you with his righteousness. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels and a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. You've come to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Look, we're going to talk a lot more about that next week, but one day we will stand in Zion, and it's going to be a party. 
The kind of joy that we cannot fully grasp here. And we who are in Christ, the only reason we're going to be there is because we are covered with Christ's righteousness. We are made new. And everything in this passage in verses 14 through 17 is saying pursue peace and holiness because God pursued peace and holiness and won it for you in Christ. Guard one another against bitterness and immorality and false faith. Not to earn righteousness, but because you've come to Zion. It's because of who you are in Christ. Walk in the righteousness that has been won for you. Do not make yourself new. Celebrate and live as one who has been made new by Christ. That's the call of today. That's the call of God to you. Receive the righteousness of Christ. Let it cover you. I want to close this actually giving us a chance to respond to the Lord, each one of us individually. So would you bow your head? I want to get us into a, I'm going to call it a time of confession, really. I feel like that's the appropriate response to this, whether you're online with us or here or here in the room. I want to give you the chance to respond. I don't know which one of these may stand out to you, to your heart. But I want you to just go before the Lord, if you would, in confession and saying, God, I, I confess I'm a sinner. Believers, unbelievers alike. Man, this is the thing that I've been holding back from you. Man, I've been bitter towards this person, that person. I have been around this thing for a while, but I've never actually received grace. God, you know there's some sin in my life that is actually the thing that I worship, and it's not you, and I don't want that anymore. I, I want to be set free. I want to be made new. Confession begins with just acknowledging that before God. So you acknowledge that. God, I, I confess. I'm a, say, I'm a sinner, and whatever that is that's in front of you, give it to him. He went on the cross for it. Give it to him. Don't play games with him. Give it to him. And then as you, you give that sin to him, if you have given it to him, that means it's not yours anymore. It's not, it's not your label. It's not your identity. No. You give that to him. And just as Christ got out of the tomb, you can turn and walk in newness of life. I want you to say to him in your own heart and mind, God, I receive your forgiveness. And I'm going to walk with you in newness of life. I receive it today. I receive it. I'm walking in it. Some of you have never received salvation. You've been one of those ones that's been a fan but not a follower. And today, God, I receive your forgiveness. I'm turning from my sin. I receive your forgiveness, and I'm walking out of here in newness of life. I have been made new. I'm walking out of here new 
Thank you, God, for saving me. Christian, return to him. Receive the refreshing that comes when you confess your sin and turn back and embrace the presence of the Lord with you. Receive it. That's a promise from Scripture. Receive it today. I want to close this time of confession. I want you to just let your, the eyes of your heart drift to that picture that I shared with you. That image of heaven, that one day that we will stand in Zion. The myriads of angels, the city of the living God, the festive gathering, the assembly of the firstborn, the spirits of the righteous people, Christ there enthroned in all, and together we will be singing joyfully, embracing one another, sons and daughters who no more pain, no more tears, worshiping the Lamb in joy and in unity. And let that stir your affections. God, I believe that day is coming. My hope in that day is going to give me hope to walk in this day, strength to walk in this day. I want you to finish this time of prayer. God, help me to give me strength, give me the power that comes from your spirit to walk as one who is covered in the righteousness of Christ. God, would you help us? We need it. Carry us, Spirit, as you promised to do. Guide us. God, would our, would our eyes be fixed on pursuing holiness and peace? Help us to encourage one another, to pull one another away from the trappings of, of sin that we've laid out today and to walk in holiness and joy. Would that holiness lead to more joy? Would that be the testimony of Mercy Church? We have received mercy, and so we walk together in joy towards you and towards that one day. Thank you, Father, for your grace on us. Oh, we worship you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, in unity, together, we're going to do so. This is why we close our worship services pretty much every week, singing together as a like collective sermon to one another of our hope in Christ. So I want you to stand up, sing the song, Good, Great. It's calling out who God is and celebrating him and the joy that he's won for us.